in Matthew 9 today. Uh, Jesus, if you remember, he healed Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum, which was sort of the headquarters of the disciples and where Jesus actually lived during the days of many of the days of his ministry at least not far from Nazareth but not the same town they uh, after he did many healings in Capernaum they got on a boat and sailed across the sea the great storm arose he stilled the storm then they came to the land of the Gadarenes where there's a man who was possessed by demons Jesus cast out the demons and uh, then the people were so afraid of Jesus because of the fact that he did that that they asked him to leave. And so they left and they traveled back across the Sea of Galilee back to Capernaum and that's where our story begins. Matthew 9 beginning in verse 1. And getting into a boat he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so they return back to Capernaum. And uh, which is called in verse 1, his own city. And, you know, it's sort of sad every time Jesus' home is referred to. Because Jesus was never welcomed in his own home. He was always rejected. His family, his siblings that is, at least his brothers... Nazareth, his hometown, rejected him. Capernaum, which is where he has made his home now, rejected him. The Jews rejected him, his home people. The world rejected him, which he made his home. Fulfilling John 1.11, 
he came to his own, which, and the Greek there just basically means he came to his home, and his own did not receive him. His home did not receive him. His people did not receive him. By and large, of course. Verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, a lame man, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now Matthew leaves a lot of details out of the story. Details which are included in Mark 2 and in Luke 5. But the details he does include align so perfectly that it's clear that this is the story of the lame man lowered through the roof by his four friends who was then healed by Jesus. This passage in Matthew doesn't mention the great lengths that these four friends went to get this man to Jesus so that he could be healed. But it's still good for us to know that as we go through the story. And there's something very strange about this verse 2. Jesus saw the faith of that he saw the faith behind the determination of the four friends bringing their friend their lame friend and he says to him so he saw the faith of them the four friends presuming it was just the four friends and not the five of them but could be saw the faith of the four and said to him the lame man take heart my son your sins are forgiven he didn't say this to the four friends. He said it to the lame man. It's that way in all three of these Gospels. Presumably the four friends brought this fellow to be healed, not to be forgiven. But Jesus looks into this fellow's heart and sees that this man's real crippler was guilt that his most severe lameness was spiritual lameness. Not only his body was lame, but his soul was in bondage. Now to us, the most obvious problem may be his lameness. But to God who sees even what is invisible to us, the big, biggest problem of every person is guilt. Now that's a radical idea in today's world. Human pain is not the biggest problem. Oppression is not the biggest problem. I don't want to minimize these things except in comparison to human guilt. The climate crisis is not the biggest problem. The biggest problem of mankind is guilt before a holy God. And that Jesus makes clear here and many other places. And Jesus gives this man the greatest gift that can be given. Forgiveness. It's so easy, isn't it, to think that our problems, our real problems, are in the physical realm. But our biggest issues are not physical issues. They're spiritual issues. 
are real inadequacies, are not physical inadequacies, but spiritual inadequacies. Our real deformities are not physical deformities, but spiritual deformities. Our worst sicknesses aren't physical sicknesses, but spiritual sicknesses. Jesus puts all the peripheral things aside and goes directly to the core of the matter. Even though he knew that the Jewish leaders would be offended by what he would say. My son, your sins are forgiven. And then verse 3, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. What are they so upset about? What are they so disturbed about? Well, the shocking thing here isn't that Jesus is announcing forgiveness. Even I can announce forgiveness. But Christ is doing more than announcing it. He's actually accomplishing it. Who else could forgive sins since all sin is ultimately an offense against God? If Fred commits a sin against Ethel, then I can't forgive that sin. It's Ethel's job to forgive it. Ultimately, all sin is against God, and he's the one, therefore, that can forgive. And so when Jesus is announcing forgiveness and declaring forgiveness, he's subtly and unashamedly proclaiming himself to be God. That's why they thought he was blaspheming. Verse 4 to 7. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he turned to the paralytic and said, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Now, it's easy to say, you're forgiven. Watch, you're forgiven. See, it's so easy to say it. But saying you are forgiven requires no visible result. But though it's easy to say it, it's impossible to do it unless you're God. Christ did miracles to verify who he was. And this is a good example. He proved that he could forgive by making the lame man walk. Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, it may be surprising if you've you know, really familiar with the Gospels, it may be surprising that the, that the people of Capernaum are shocked or this surprised because they had seen many of Christ's miracles. Later, Jesus condemns them because they saw so many miracles and didn't repent. So why were they so shocked if, this, if he was doing miracles left and right? Well, this time, his miracle was different. The source of their surprise was not so much the healing, 
but the declaration of forgiveness. This took it to a whole new level. This was a new aspect of Christ's power and authority being demonstrated. He actually even had authority over sin. This was in fact the greatest power displayed by Jesus up to this time. Power over physical things like sicknesses and storms was helpful, but honestly only temporary. Power over evil spirits was also wonderful, but only temporary and only effective for demoniacs. But Christ's power over sin and guilt represents an earthly, I'm sorry, represents an eternal issue and one that applies to every person. This in many ways represents the pinnacle of the revelation of Christ's authority up to this point. Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now the other two Gospels, in Mark and in Luke, they use the name Levi here. So obviously Matthew had two names. But this Gospel is the one Matthew himself wrote. So this is the name he called himself. So we call him Matthew out of deference to him. If you know, we give that kind of uh, latitude to each other, we call you by the name that you want to be called by. This does not mean that this, that this calling of Matthew can be taken as if this is the first time Matthew ever met Jesus. Jesus just walked along, said, follow me, and Matthew just dropped everything and followed him. Now, that's possible, but more likely, Matthew already knew Jesus, already believed in Jesus as a result of the things he'd heard, the miracles he'd probably seen because he lived in Capernaum. And, uh, and so, when Jesus called him to be a disciple, he was uh, being elevated to that new uh, privileged position of closeness with Jesus um, and he was ready for that what makes the immediacy of Matthew's response so impressive is that tax gatherers though they were hated they were rich people and Matthew walked away from that lucrative profession to follow Jesus. And he became a poor man, financially. And yet, he became anything but a poor man, spiritually. Now, since the beginning, the devil has been whispering in people's ears that God is cheating them. But the fact is, Matthew spent very little in order to buy the world's greatest treasure. Jesus said that anyone who gave up everything for him would be, regard, would be rewarded a hundredfold. Matthew 19.29 Psalm 63.3 says, His loving kindness is better than life. 
No matter how big our dreams are, God's are bigger. No matter how wonderful our dreams are, God's are better. They don't always seem it, or we don't always feel it, but they are. And that's why the best ambition to have, the best vision for your life a person can have is to follow Jesus all the days of our lives. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his temple. Psalm 27, 4. And as Jesus, this is verse 10 now, as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, again, Matthew leaves out some of the details here, and probably for personal reasons. But the fact is, um, this, was at Matthew, this dinner was at Matthew's house. So what seems to have happened is that as Matthew is called to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple, he invites all of his friends to a dinner to meet Jesus. And that's what is going on here. And they were told that while they were um, reclining, some Pharisees were complaining about Jesus spending his time with tax collectors and sinners. Now, you know, we know tax collectors were unpopular because they had sided with the Roman government against the Jewish people in, to be the vessels of Rome to collect taxes, often unjustly, to, uh, for Rome. So they were hated. And uh, so the Pharisees, this was what was behind the Pharisees' disgust with what was going on here. And here we see a very stark contrast. On the one hand, we see Matthew so eager to follow Jesus that he drops everything and he goes. As a tax collector, he must have felt so unworthy of Christ's attention and his invitation to be his follower. On the other hand, we have the Pharisees. Not only... Uh, not interested in following Jesus, but offended by everything he did, looking for ammunition to attack him. Now, we've seen this kind of contrast before in the Bible. Between the humble recipients of God's grace and those who resent the humble recipients of God's grace because they think they're the ones who should have been honored and favored and gifted. We saw it with Jonah and the Ninevites, didn't we? Where the prophet Jonah was bitter because God gave his grace to the Ninevites. But we also have the contrast between the younger brother and the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The 
younger brother feels unworthy of his father's favor, while the older brother is resentful toward his younger brother that he that the younger brother has been the recipient of the father's favor because he thinks he didn't deserve it, I did. And really, this is a pattern that we're supposed to notice and be keenly aware of. And this is the scene, the same pattern that's being played out in this drama with Matthew and the Pharisees. In verse 12, but when he heard it, that is, um, when uh, Jesus heard the question of the Pharisees, the complaint of the Pharisees, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, of course, Jesus is being sarcastic here. He is, there is no well person, and Jesus isn't saying that the Pharisees really don't need him. It's just that the Pharisees didn't think they were sick and didn't think they needed the physician. So he's, you know, take, take these words in quotes, uh, those who are well. Jesus obviously knows that the Pharisees are spiritually sick. And he makes that clear many times over. Just read Matthew 23. And in fact, that's the Pharisees' problem, is that they don't think that they're sick. They don't think that they're needy. They don't think that they're sinful. They don't think that they're corrupt. But Jesus comes along and says, you wash the outside of the cup, but inside is full of corruption. Jesus is making a distinction between two kinds of people. The healthy are the self-righteous, who think that they deserve commendation from God. The sick are those who are aware of their sin and who are contrite and humble because they know that they are undeserving. Christ didn't come in search of sinners as if that would have been hard to find. Christ came in search of people who are aware of their great sinfulness. And they are hard to find. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66.2 And David prayed, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 51. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. And blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And woe to those who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The sick ones, you see, are those who are blind to their miserable condition. Ultimately, that's the sickest ones of all. In Revelation six, in Revelation three seventeen, Jesus describes them in this way: "You say I am rich, 
I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Christ is willing and eager to restore. There are no other qualifications. All you need is to know your need. All you need is to recognize you're sick. You don't need money or fame. You don't need intelligence or education. You don't need a history of good living or a wholesome upbringing. All you need to receive the physician's services is to own your need of Him. God doesn't look for talent or personality or flashiness or self-confidence or brilliance or beauty or dynamism. You don't have to be something you're not. Christ didn't come to save those who are better than everyone else. He came to save those who know they're just as bad as everyone else. Verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is the last verse of the passage. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus does not merely rebuke them for their blindness concerning their own sin, but for their lack of compassion toward those who were ensnared by sin. So their lack of compassion towards the repentant sinner and their preoccupation with ceremony, with empty religious ritual. God hates hypocrisy. Sacrifices are detestable to God when they're done with an empty heart or when they're a substitute for real love and obedience. This story shows us that the Pharisees neglected showing mercy to the lost and focused only on the external practices of religion. But a follower of Christ must willingly be ready to get his hands dirty, just as Jesus did when he touched the leper, the lame man, the demoniac, the bleeding woman. And we have become his assistants, aiding him in his work as the great physician. If someone is unwilling to get his hands dirty in ministry, it is a sure sign that he doesn't really recognize his own sickness from which he has been supposedly healed. And if that's the case, then he hasn't been healed. For the physician only came to heal the sick, not the healthy. And if we think of ourselves as healthy, then we prove we're not yet the objects of the physician's healing touch. Jesus came to call sinners. He despises the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Now as we look at this passage, you know, these really two passages as a whole, there are five brief takeaways I'd like to give you before we leave. First of all, we are all paralyzed. We are all lame. Remember that each healing miracle is a picture of Christ's salvation. And that means that each malady from which someone is healed is a picture of human sin somehow. This man's paralysis is a picture of how helpless we all are apart from Christ. Apart from me you can do nothing, Jesus said in John 15.5. Paul says, none is righteous, no not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Romans 3, 10-12. Apart from Christ, we are paralyzed. We can't even move, spiritually speaking. The second thing. When people are oppressed, they are always impressed by the sin of the oppressor. It's not, it's, it's easy to think of a victim as sinless, especially when you're the victim. But all people are sinners, even people who can't walk are sinners. When this man was brought to Jesus, Jesus knew that his real problem was his sin, not his lameness. When the, and on a bigger picture, when the Messiah came, the people of Israel expected the Messiah to go after their oppressors, didn't they? To go after the Romans. But instead, what was so surprising to them was that Jesus went after them. Not because they were worse sinners than Rome, but because God cares about the sins of his people more than the sins of their enemies. He wept not over Rome, he wept over Jerusalem. He wasn't worried about the sins of Rome in the same way. This is so important for us to realize we also focus on the sin of our oppressors instead of realizing that we are sinners just like them. We always complain about how we're being mistreated. But we don't think much about the way that we mistreat others or about the way we wrongly respond when we're mistreated. It's important here to recognize that Jesus focused on the need for forgiveness of this lame man. So different than we would ever focus if we were presented with this situation. Now let's talk about forgiveness for a moment. This man was not forgiven because he'd done more good things than bad. He was forgiven in a moment, irrespective of what he had done. Forgiveness, you see, is a declaration, not a quest. 
Forgiveness is a declaration, not a quest. Forgiveness is not something you achieve, but something you receive. You may not always feel forgiven, but the question is whether you believe God's declaration that you have been forgiven. Over and over again, God promises in his word that he will forgive the sins of those who repent and come to him. And if you've truly done that, you can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 Number four. These two stories give us good models of believers bringing their friends to Jesus. That's why I preached on them together. Here, the first story is four men who go to great lengths to bring their friend to Jesus. And then the story of Matthew who invited his friends over for dinner to meet Jesus. This is an important theme in this passage. And this is the way generally people come to Christ. They're brought by friends. I think probably most of us have a story that we could tell about a friend who loved us enough to bring us to Jesus. Someone who reached out. Someone who cared. Someone who spoke. Someone who prayed. Someone who put forth a little effort Someone who introduced us to the Savior. Without someone to bring you, most people would never come. We know the the lame man was saved. But we, we don't know about Matthew's friends. We don't know if any of them came to know and follow Jesus. You can't guarantee whether they'll come or not. All you can do is try to bring them to Jesus. Some people might even reject you as a result. They might no longer be your friend, but your enemy if you try to bring them to Jesus. That's part of the cost. But we need to try to bring people to Jesus and get rid of whatever obstacles that are there that prevent them from coming. If no one tries, if no one loves, if no one prays, it's almost certain that no one will come. Think about your friends, your neighbors, your work associates, your relatives. Who can you reach out to? Who can you try to bring to Jesus? Or who can you befriend? in hopes of being able to bring them to Jesus. The four friends gave up a major part of their day. Matthew had a big mess to clean up after dinner, I'm sure. We've all done that before. It takes time. It takes zeal. It takes cost. It takes love. It takes faith to put forth the effort that's usually required to get over the obstacles. If we just wait for it to be convenient, we'll never do it. It will never happen. And then finally, the fifth point. There are people who often...
don't have many friends because they have little to offer. The poor, the disabled, the deformed, the foreigner, the elderly, many others that could be mentioned. This kind of person is often more open to the gospel than others because they're more aware of their need. And they know that you're not loving them because you are trying to get something from them. That's a perpetual problem for the rich and the beautiful who everybody always wants a piece of their time. But the outcast, the discarded, the despised, the disregarded, they desperately need friends who will carry them to Jesus. And if we just love the beautiful people in our lives, the fun people in our lives, the people that we click with, the people that we get something out of, then is it really the love of Christ that's driving us? Or is it just our own personality? It is probably a good thing for me to apologize for my failures in these very things uh, over my, the years of my ministry. Um, it, is, it seems to me that uh, you know these things are in the scriptures and it's my job to bring them out and show them to you. That's an easier job than it is for me to actually do it. We, we talked this morning in Sunday school about this. And, um, and so I, uh, I don't say these things as if I'm ready to say, just follow me. Like, like Paul said, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In some ways I have to say, forgive me that I haven't done this, but you do it anyway. Because I'm not the one telling you these things, God is. I'm in your same shoes. But let's seek the Lord and ask his help to become his instruments of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so, so rich and we thank you for it. We thank you for these stories, O oh Lord, that's happened so long ago and yet still have so much to say to us in our lives. And Lord, we thank you that you uh, healed this lame man. And uh, we look forward to meeting him someday and hearing the rest of the story. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn lessons from what we are given to be humble and uh, to be useful in your hands to help others to come to Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we grapple with these things also to see the wonderful grace of Jesus who stooped down, became a man, and reached out to the lowest of men and showed love to them. And Lord, we know that we are like them. 
There's nothing about us, O Lord, that appealed to you. It was only your grace that touched us. And we thank you for that. And now as we come to the table of our Lord, we thank you that you've given us yet another reminder of your grace toward us. And we pray that you would feed us and remind us and refresh us and meet us, O Lord. For we are weak and we need to be with you. We need to be filled with you. We pray in Jesus' name.